and welcome to Soberholic Podcast. This show is designed to address topics that will encourage, equip, and inspire you to explore life's most difficult topics and overcome your biggest challenges. Today, your hosts, Roger and Jason, will share from their own experience how you can find hope and healing in recovery. Welcome to Soberholic Podcast. I'm actually down here in New Orleans visiting uh, this weekend. And so I'm getting a great opportunity to catch up with one of my former uh, mentors um, that, you know, really helped me out a lot whenever I was down here um, for the four years that I was down here, um, Sean Grumblatt. Is it okay if I use your last name? Absolutely. Yeah. So just making sure. But uh, welcome, Sean. Thank you for being on the show with us. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's a real pleasure. It's uh, I'm glad to be a part of this podcast and and I'm proud of the things that you're doing. So hopefully what God's been doing in my life and years of change and transformation that have gone on in that time period can, can help some of your audience. Yeah, and uh, a funny story about Sean. Whenever Sean works at the church that I worked at, like when I was really still kind of fresh out of the rehab that I was coming out of, like I, I started working part-time at the church at um, here in New Orleans as like a worship assistant. And whenever they like hired me on, like they were talking to Sean um, because Sean has a similar story. And, you know, they knew that, you know, Sean kind of had some insights into somebody who's kind of fresh out of rehab or whatever. And you told them, you know, well, I mean, he might not make it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's true, you know, Jason, so so few people do, unfortunately. You know, there's just a, a, a real recidivity rate of people, especially uh, with opioids in their background and so forth. And I know that uh, uh, I just wanted to be real, you know. and Oh, it was real. That was definitely <laughs> a real possibility of me not making it. <laughs> Yeah, but you uh, you you beat the, you beat the numbers, you beat the statistics on that, and uh, you uh, you really shined while you were here doing it. So we're certainly proud of you. Yeah, and I just want to appreciate all the long, long talks that we had um, in your office, uh, coming to you with all kind of problems uh, all the time. <laughs> I was like, listen to this. And you were always there, and I appreciate it. Well, you know that works both ways. You know, with uh, with. When you're helping, you're being helped, and uh, and you, you know, we we helped one another. Mm. We helped make each other strong through that time. I mm. appreciate. So yeah, let's just kind of hear a little bit about your story from the beginning. Um, you know what what it was like, what happened, where you're at now. Let's start back from the beginning. <clears throat> wow, that's a fun long journey. I'll try to make it as brief as I can. Uh, I'm gonna go back to as a teenager. You know, came from a broken family, like everyone. Well, not like everyone, but many of us. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, very quickly got off track because uh, a lot of time alone. And uh, let me fix this right. Oh yeah. yeah. My uh, my parents you know, divorced when I was fairly young, so I'm. It's just me and my dad, so we have a lot of time. Me and a lot of my friends were the same way that we were unattended. Anyway. Got off into a group of friends that went down the wrong path. So I was probably about 15 years old when I, when I really started getting into, into, into drugs regularly and immediately into selling drugs. And, you know, that path 
evolved very quickly where it became hard for me to imagine a life of much of anything else. I looked around and saw other people doing all this difficult stuff. And for me, it seemed like I'd found a shortcut. You know, coming from the kind of brokenness that I had been experiencing, you want people to love you. You want people to respect you uh, and have kind of something going on for you in your life. And for some people, drugs and selling drugs can kind of create that environment, the culture and the, and the friends, especially selling drugs. It was for me, people, people would kind of tend to treat you with a certain kind of respect mm-hmm. and um, this kind of a faux love or you feel like you're needed sometimes amongst your friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a group of I mean, it was people that I grew up with, Yeah, but they needed me. I felt like they needed me because I had something that they needed. And it provides for, you know, it seems like a magic bullet. You know, you're making money and and people want to be around you. And you, so you get attention. You get attention from your guy friends. You get attention from girls that, you know, especially when you're a developing teenager, that's that's not always an easy uh, sure. <laughs> easy thing to accomplish. Right. If you're not the quarterback of the football team. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, you wasn't the quarterback? <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, as uh, that, that kind of really just developed and it made a mark. You know, as a teenager, you're developing your identity, and that's really where my identity began to really show itself. Uh, I, over the next few years, that became what I was known for, you know, being at parties or, or around high school, not only a guy that could get you drugs, but also he's probably the loaded guy in the corner. Yeah. Right. You know, that becomes part of who you are. You were the bringer of the party anywhere <laughs> yeah. you went. Yeah. And you and you can almost be kind of that's your that becomes your pride, I remember kind of foolishly. Now you're a DJ during all this time too, right? No, I, I did I fiddled around with a little bit of DJing just like uh you know, around the house and stuff like that. I did promote some rave parties. Oh, you were big in raves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was big I was big into raves. Mostly making money there. Yeah, you know. Well, that that's part of the story. Let me let me deal Sorry. with first yeah. getting into some trouble. When I was eighteen, uh, you know, I I you know I got into dealing drugs younger, but I got into more things. Started off with weed, and then and then LSD, and then you know making trips to Mexico to get different kinds of pills and things like that. And uh, at eight, but at eighteen years old, I, I was getting a shipment of ten pounds of weed mailed to me, which was, you know, in hindsight, quite a foolish thing. Uh, but I got arrested. And so I really just had turned 18 years old. So as soon as I turned 18 years old, I really, I pick up my first fel- felony. Mm. And I'm a little guy. You can't, on a, on a podcast. Yeah, we're we're both, we're me. both uh, pocket sides here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so prison life didn't seem very appealing <laughs> to me. I wasn't really into the direction that that was going. And so I really kind of went underground and went on the run. And the, and the rave scene was budding at that time period in New Orleans. This was in the mid-90s. Uh, and so I got, you know, I got involved in that. You know, I, if you're wanted, you, you need to find a way that you can, you know, it's kind of like that vicious cycle of, uh, of the way addiction can, can, can get a hold of your life. And there's fewer and fewer things other that you could possibly do. So, so I kind of, needed to be able to be off the books and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, off the grid. So dealing drugs really began to be, for me, the only 
only only way to survive. Because you're at warrants. And yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. I've got uh-huh. I've got warrants because I didn't want to go to prison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that that began to play itself out. You know, the New Orleans rave scene was really beginning to grow, and uh, it was a place where you could, you know, it's, if, if you're from not aware of what a rave is, it's kind of an all night party where people would go and take a lot of things like ecstasy, methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. Uh, LSD drugs like that and and there's you know there's DJs and there's music and there's people dancing but there's a whole uh, economy yeah <laughs> that's operating within that world and that was that was you know, my my uh, that became my world all my you know all my friends all my uh, business uh, maneuvers mm-hmm. uh, became a part of that world and and, and it's kind of you devolve into a place, especially when you're selling drugs, and the bigger and bigger you get with that, to, to the extent that you don't know people that don't sell drugs anymore, and and you don't want to because they're they can be kind of a liability for you. You know, you begin to isolate yourself more and more to where you have this small circle of people that you can trust or you think you can trust. Yeah, and then before you know it, you're Scarface and you're paranoid <laughs> and you're a jacuzzi. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. So anyway, that that went on for a while, and and, and Louisiana is really unique, especially New Orleans. At least at the time, uh, I got arrested a few times, even while I was wanted in New Orleans and in Lafayette, and, and in some different places. But somehow our parishes aren't really good. We have parishes instead of um, counties. Mm-hmm. Our parishes aren't very good with, about communicating with one another, especially Orleans Parish. And so I was able to pick up a few more felonies while I'm already wanted for felonies. Oh, yeah. you know, so those things really kind of have a tendency of accumulating whenever, whenever that's your life and your world. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but that had, you know, that paints the picture of mm-hmm. what my life had become. I didn't have a lot of other, a lot of, a lot of other options available to me. Uh, but uh, I met a girl, and, uh, and and we fell in love, and, and my son. Uh, magically appeared. Huh. <laughs> Actually, go into that. How does that exactly work? <laughs> Skip. So uh, that came that that came about, uh, and uh, her name was Michelle, and she was she was broken, and, and there was a lot of addiction on both uh, on both of our parts. However, you know, there's something special that happens with you know with the birth of a child. You, mm. you kind of have this sense of of looking that child's eyes for the first time, and it's it's really a, a magical, uh, spiritual thing. It was for me that you know these this pair of eyes looking back at me needs me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and all of a sudden you see the world in a, in a completely different way. For me, you know, I often reflect back on that. It was kind of like for just a moment, just a, in, in a small way, I kind of began to understand God in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know that that the Father aspect of it which you know you don't ever think about until you're <laughs> until you're in it uh, that doesn't mean my life changed uh, 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 or that I became sober after that either you know, we, I, I, I tried to clean up my life get a job I even got some of those legal issues taken care of I went to court on some of those things and was able to uh, to be able to get you know some probation because it Strangely, the the original judge that I had on those first that ten pounds, he uh, he had cancer whenever, whenever I was supposed to be on trial for that, and he was he was in a parish that was pretty strict, 
anyway, he ended up dying, and so there's a change to the judges, and and um, and I ended up getting probation on that. So I tried to get my life straight together. I ended up getting a job, and and I, so I go from selling drugs to I get a job working for a beta brewing company. <laughs> <laughs> I become a brewmaster, oh, yeah. which was a you know, I, I had a really good time doing that. Oh, sure. <laughs> and I learned a lot of neat things. A lot of people don't realize you know, the, the depth of what goes on behind science. Behind it's the science, literal of, science of yeah. making beer. Yeah, it was really, for a while, rewarding. But it was a factory. You know, we, we didn't serve beer. Yeah. I mean, we we served ourselves beer. There. Right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we, we had, had a taste tap, test it. We yeah. had a tap room, but... Uh, and we drank straight from the vessels, but but we you know it wasn't a bar room, so you didn't really see what you were doing with that. And anyway, I did that for a couple of years, and but we hadn't broken away uh, from from we added. I certainly drank a lot more after that, but we added uh, added more alcohol to already a, a relationship, a marriage. I did, did get married that uh, had a lot of addiction mm-hmm. already uh, yeah. embedded in it. You know, from before the start. So anyway, uh, we began uh, been have some problems. You know, more, you know, the addiction just grows and grows and becomes more of a monster. And so we decided we decided we needed to get away. You know, I, sometimes when I tell the story, I'll explain some of uh, some of more of the details of, of what led to that. But I don't want to bring my my wife's part of the story into mm-hmm. it. She's not here to tell it yeah. any longer. Uh, but but addiction on both of our parts really kind of came at us like a monster after we had tried to to, to do better for my son Elijah. So anyway, uh, we end up moving back to Jackson. It's where her family was from. It was kind of getting away from New Orleans. We're, we move up to Jackson, Mississippi. Everything's different, so you know it's an opportunity to start over. And and I became the brewmaster of a brew pub there named Hall and Miles. And, and I was the youngest brewmaster in, in Mississippi. I think it was the only other brewery besides one at one of the casinos there. So it was neat and exciting. And I, and I was running a brew pub instead of a brewery. And I really jumped into that. Really, I think my addictive personality moved into workah- become a workaholic and, and a little bit of alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I but I wasn't doing any you know any of the other drugs. I wasn't smoking weed. I wasn't doing ecstasy or LSD or taking pills or any of that. Not regularly. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't my life. Right. Yeah. And, I, and dealing wasn't my life. I wasn't dealing drugs because dealing had been a big part of my addiction. That was an addiction uh, itself. It was most yeah. certainly a, a huge. It was a bigger addiction for me, and, and it does come back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a much bigger addiction for me than any other particular drug that I had used. For me, I was, I did more rec. I did recreational drugs. I was a drug addict for sure, an alcoholic for sure. But I, I kind of tend to define two different types of, of addiction, or basically two regular types of addiction that I've observed. You know, there's the maintenance addict. You know that your your opioids and some other physically addictive drugs more often tend in that direction, and then you know binge addiction. And I, and I was good at the binges, <laughs> but I can pull it together for a little while and get totally clean yeah, for a little while. Yeah. And I do that regularly as a maintenance, uh, especially when I was dealing drugs, because for me it was a business. And like sometimes the the binge would, would interfere with the business. And mm-hmm. so I'd get, I'd have to have that nest egg build. 
anyway, get back to the point. So there we are in Jackson, and uh, and you know, it didn't take long before the, the monster really reared its head again. For me, it had it had manifested itself in workaholism and alcoholism. Uh, but you know, here I, there's a part of the story that's my wife's, my deceased wife's that I, that I have to tell here that. Uh, she, hers manifested itself. I'm absent because I'm at work all the time. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I was running a, a brewery and then I was bartending as well. And we had a lot of concerts at Howland Mouse, a big music venue. And so uh, I was bartending there because, you know, I, I might make four, 600 bucks in the night. Mm-hmm. You know, if you know, bands like Three Doors Down would play there. A lot of big, big bands yeah. of the, of that period of the, Late '90s, early 2000s, were playing Smash Mouth, yeah, <laughs> stuff like that. that. Yeah. Stuff, yeah. In fact, the guy who owned it, he put on he puts on big music festivals in Mississippi, like Jubilee Jam, and so forth. Anyway, uh, so I, you know, I'm there late, and, mm-hmm. and I start closing, you know, bartending, closing the bar, and then going out with the other bartenders and wait staff to the late night bars, and you know, drinking Jägermeister at work. You know, that just the whole that whole lifestyle, that whole lifestyle. And, uh, but, but my wife, Michelle, she is taking care of my son and she did hair, you know, she was a hairdresser. So that was very structured for her. But then she picks the kid up from, from childcare and comes home and, and I'm at work. You know, and I think that began to manifest itself. She, she, I was the binge addict. She was more of the maintenance addict Mm -hmm. in uh, the relationship. So for her, it was often, you know, Vicodin, Lortab, later on Oxycontin, uh, that kind of a thing that she couldn't escape. She couldn't just decide to to purge herself of mm-hmm. that without and, and still be able to take care of my son and, and, and meet her clients at work without mm-hmm. without being really ill. So for her during that time period, it, it began, but that began to grow uh, through what would be recognized most people at that time through legitimate means she was going to the doctor and getting them right and so she was able to kind of feel like she was <laughs> somewhat yeah yeah it wasn't like buying bags of ketamine at a rave party right. it was, <laughs> yeah it was a little bit different and that really began to grow and that affected the intimacy in our relationship you know and the older i get and the further away i go from that i you know, I was such, I viewed myself as such a victim back then, and I can see now, and hopefully when I tell the story now, I, I recognize within it that I wasn't a victim because just like I said, she, you know, she was coping through opiates, and I'm coping through workaholism and uh, and alcohol and so forth. So the intimacy, I, I often and, I, and even in my memory, the intimacy going away for me was based on her addiction to pain pills but if i'm honest i have to realize that there was (laughs) a whole lot more to it than just that and certainly my absence affected affected the intimacy but i was 21 years old right excuse not making an excuse here she was she was 29 at the time maybe 30 at the time so there was a little bit of an age gap there a lot of brokenness that's the bottom line Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, sin a lot of addiction a lot of struggles that are going on that I was certainly not equipped to deal with, recognize. I didn't even know, you know, you don't know what you don't know. I had no idea oh, yeah. what I was doing, what was going on in my life. 
what the real problems were or how to deal with them. And uh, anyway, that evolved into our, our marriage falling apart and uh, separating. It kind of came to the head. There was some, some a situation that happened at Michelle's work where she fell out because she was on this prescribed medication for from the psychologist, psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had some mood issues. It was a mood stabilizer, and it counteracted with some opioids that she was taking, and she kind of fell out at work. And we go to the doctor. I take off of work and go to the doctor with her, and the doctor is like, uh, well, how are you doing from the accident that you were in to her? I'm like, what accident? <laughs> Well, she had come to that doctor to get pain pills and said she had a uh, car yeah. accident. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I get all self-righteous and uh, you know, throw a fit. And, and we had been going through marriage counseling and all this stuff. And, and I was really trying the best of my ability. Again, drunk half yeah, right. <laughs> the yeah. time you yeah. know, at work, uh, drunk and at work yeah. <laughs> instead of being <laughs> being there with her and working through things. But we, we'd been going through some counseling and some doing some things like that. And I was trying trying my best, uh, which was certainly not good enough. But I, but I come to that, revel- I, I received that revelation. And so my response is, is pretty, you know, immature. And uh, I contact my insurance company. I find out, you know, she's gotten like 55 bottles of different kinds of narcotics right. from my insurance company in about a three-month mm-hmm. period of time was all a surprise to me because she wasn't sharing any of it with me. <laughs> so again, I get, I get all self-righteous and I say one of the biggest mistakes in my life was to lay down an ultimatum. I mean, I'm, again, I'm, a, I'm an idiot kid. Yeah. I'm like you go to rehab now or I'm leaving. And she says, don't let the door hit you. Oh man. And so, you know, trying to be a man of my word, I, I got a little apartment and I left. And that was that was such a foolish, foolish thing. You know, I had no idea about what tough love was. Uh, I was tough, but yeah, <laughs> certainly I, I missed the mark with uh, laying down that ultimatum. So hypocritical as well. But, but that's what it is. The story. That's that's, my, that's that's part of my story. And so uh, for the first time, I'm kind of on my own in this little apartment. It was really a an old servant's quarters behind uh, a, a guy that I barely knew his house. He opened his house to me and uh, he was, his name was Mike. He's a good guy. Uh, I really appreciate him and his character. Uh, and he, he became my, you know, one of my friends and he was Catholic and uh, I started visiting uh, church with him some and I had another neighbor across the street that was Baptist and I visited church with him some uh that was first baptist jackson we called it six flags over jesus Mm -hmm. (laughs) big church up there anyway uh you know i'd grown up catholic and always really kind of felt like i had some kind of relationship with god not a real committed relationship with god i like to say that i was sympathetic towards god meaning i believed god existed i believed that jesus existed that he was the son of god but and I certainly wouldn't uh, agree with people who either hated God or, or you know, but I didn't necessarily believe the Bible or and I certainly hadn't submitted my life to God in any way. But anyway, God began really working in my life during that period of time. I, 
I started kind of reading the Bible. I got this disc that was the gospel that I would yeah. sometimes listen to it when I was going to sleep. I was getting Jesus by osmosis. <laughs> <laughs> um, and really just kind of became a seeker of sorts at that time. But my marriage really was, was over. I mean, essentially, it, it was never uh, never recovered after that. And over time, I ended up seeing seeing other people, and she ended up seeing other people. But I'm visiting church and, and working and, and, and going on and so forth. And it wasn't long before I'm paying child support. And I'd been running this group. I've been making pretty good money, making mm-hmm. more money than I've been making over the last couple of years. Uh, and... But I start to think about um, I'm paying child support and all this stuff, so my financial needs begin to grow. And I've got all these old friends, you know, that that I've known for so many years. And I'm in a different venue in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what people will pay for a bag of weed in Mississippi is 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 different than New Orleans. It's quite a yeah. bit more than than what people were paying for them. In so New that creeped back in a little bit. Yeah, so the the uh, entrepreneur in me started to make some trips back to New Orleans to to uh, you know pick up. A, started off, you know, just like all addiction does. It starts off a little bit. Let me go pick up an ounce, and I'll sell sell eights, you know. Yeah. And uh, and it wasn't long before it was a quarter pound, and it wasn't long before it was a pound, and then it was five pounds, and and you know. Before I know it, I've got this three-state drug ring that I'm running where I'm getting loads of high-end marijuana and distributing it amongst all these other people that, that work for me. And I'm, I quit my job because I was losing money going to work. Right, yeah. <laughs> or at least that's the way I looked at it. Um, it's kind of, that's a cycle that went on in my life mm-hmm. constantly. I can look back over that. 12, 15 year period of time where mm-hmm. that's the same kind of story I told myself. You know, when you're an addict, you start telling yourself these lies until you believe them. And then you can look people straight in the face and tell them. <laughs> and then you believe it. Yeah. You believe it. Yeah. 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 I can remember there was a good friend of mine. I used to tell her parents that I was a regional, I was in regional sales. <laughs> regional sales. I like that. Anyway. What line? What line? Yeah, I was, it was. It was honest. Um, you know that it was. It didn't take me very long. I I had amassed about twenty six thousand dollars that I was kind of bankrolling, and I I decided to go back to school. And I got into Jackson State University on a minority scholarship and started studying business. So I thought I'd go into marketing. <laughs> it just it just seemed right. And, wow. uh, and and in the first summer there, I made a 4.0, and that gave me some confidence that, yeah. that I didn't have. Because to be honest with you, in high school, you know, I think they just graduated me, so I'd stop selling drugs to the kids there. They wanted me to go. It was, it was better for everyone yeah. if I graduated with my, like, 0.8 GPA or something, <laughs> something ridiculous like that. I know I missed more days than I went in, in my senior years. <laughs> anyway, I kind of got some some confidence and thought that maybe I could do something with my life. And I wanted to I wanted to try to restore things with Michelle and be the father and the husband that she and my and my kids needed. And uh, started going to church a little bit more and 
thought I would thought I would take all this money out of out of drug dealing that I've had, kind of use it to get on my feet and, and kind of as a a way to to restart with her and get our life back going. But but she was certainly not ready for that, and I think my attempt to come back at that point interacted with her addiction on a level that just sent it off even more. Yeah. And so it was super complicated. Yeah. And I, I, I began to seek God more and more, even still, and uh, going going and visiting churches and trying to attend them and, and praying a lot and just wanting to be better and wanting to be different, wanting to be there for my kids and wanting to have a family. Just about 24, 25 at this, at this time. And I remember it pretty sharply. It was the month of my daughter's birthday. We were supposed to go. It's actually after my daughter. My daughter's birthday is August 22nd. We're supposed to go to my mom's house kind of in, in September to celebrate it there in Slidell. We were going to go together and, and do that. She had a really good relationship with my mom. And so we had plans to do that, but I had picked up the kids and she was going to come, but then she, you know, she, I think she, she went off on a bend or she was with this guy that she was seeing and I went. And uh, so, so that Friday, maybe it was the Saturday morning, her good friend, Whitney, gives me a call, asked me if I've heard from her. I said, well, no, she's supposed to come up here, but she she decided not to. And at this point, usually if she dropped the kids off with me, she'd turn her phone off until she was, she was ready to pick them yeah. back up. You know, I think most people who are familiar with addiction will be familiar with that kind of maneuver. Where mm-hmm. If you're out there on a bench, you don't want anything to get mm-hmm. <laughs> interrupt that, uh, especially me, and, uh, and rightly so. So didn't think a whole lot of it. I just figured she was off doing what she did. But then the next day she called me again to tell me that the car that she had been driving was found abandoned on Highway 80 and that she was missing. And it was, I I'll, I still remember this very moment very clearly. Uh, my mom was in the room and I just fell on my knees right there. I was standing behind my mom's couch and just cried out to God, no. Because you know, I'd been praying very hard. To be the father and the husband, and have my family restored, and just in that moment, I knew that 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 answer to that prayer was no, and it was tears and brokenness, and you know, every horrible thing went through my mind, and it was you know the next week she was missing for a whole week, and saddest thing is that the only hope that I had, the greatest hope for for all that, that I was dreaming and hoping for was the guy that she had been seeing, seeing said he thought she was out you know, tricking for crack, mm-hmm. which that was not the Michelle I knew, right? but it was the best hope out there. And that wasn't the case. Right. And that wasn't who she was. But I spent the next week on the streets of Jackson. You know, we had a, I had this money, so I had this. I made this reward and these posters, and I'm going around. I even hired a dude I met on the street to go into different places 
and uh, look for mm-hmm. her. And you know, two in the morning, I'm you know going down these really dangerous streets and armed, and I've got some of my friends from the world that I was familiar with, yeah, who were willing to do whatever, come along with me. I remember one time this guy that I hired to help us look. We're at this gas station somewhere, and you know, I, I had a gun on me, and and there were police there watching the situation. There, I almost got shot because, you know, as the police run up, because what we were doing looked suspicious. Because I'm trying to talk to this guy and help him look for for somebody that we think is prostituting for crack. Yeah, uh, it's so sad and dark, uh, but but that was the the hope. That was the only hope that I had. And, um, you know, cop runs up and, and draws his gun on me, and I'm, like, freaking out. And I don't – I was a felon already, so right. I'm not supposed to have a concealed weapon. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, like, trying to toss a gun while yeah, that's not good. Anyway, uh, really amazing I didn't go to prison that night uh, for a number of different reasons. Anyway, so it turns out – uh, on, I believe it was my 25th birthday, or the day after my 25th birthday, September 28th, uh, I get a call. Well, no, I call Michelle's grandparents' house because her car had moved. And I was like, well, maybe she came back. Mm-hmm. But it just so happened that there was a detective at their house at that time, and he wanted to ask me a few questions. They wanted to know if I knew who her dentist was. And that was a, a very dark thing, you know, because the reality of somebody when, you, when you're hoping that you're going to find your wife and then the detective just wants to know who her dentist was, it's not hard to, to figure mm-hmm. out that, that they want dental records right. to, try to, yeah. to try to identify her. And so... The spin begins there. You know, I spin completely out of control at that point, become so unstable. And the only way I know how to cope with anything is drugs, alcohol, and friends who are on drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I go on this drug slash dealing binge, and I really become super unstable, and I lose custody of my kids for like six years. Yeah. And within, usually the way I look at it is, Basically, within six months to a year, I lost my wife. Uh, I lost my kids. And then I was delivering a, a kilo of dank to a, weed to a guy in, in New Orleans. And I had, a, I, was, I had this cycle that I would mm-hmm. go around from Mississippi, Louisiana, sometimes into Alabama, dropping off drugs and picking up money. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of in the midst of this this cycle and so I've got a lot of money and a lot of drugs on me at the same time and just not caring yeah the way it always not even being careful probably (laughs) no I used to have rules every time I would get busted and then start over again I'd have all these rules and I I think all addicts know about that or I'll just have one drink or Mm -hmm. (laughs) I won't do this kind of drug that Mm -hmm. kind of thing my rule one of my rules was you know don't deliver drugs after so and so at night yeah don't drink and don't be smoking your, oh, you know, breaking all the rules. All the, for all the rules. Anyway, I'm following this guy home from the bar, and he, he's, he dr- blows through a red light, so I stop and then end up in the wrong 
place at the wrong time, which always is the way it always happened. You know, I always got busted by happenstance. So I get basically end up getting searched and I've, and I've got all this drugs and all this money on me. And this is like my fifth felony. So I go to OPP and like I become the jailhouse hero there. Whenever they hear, hear what my bail is, my bail was like a half a million dollars. And so they think they got some kind of some important person or something because, you know, it's a bunch of people who are in there for smoking crack and stealing something from, uh, I'm not going to, I can't speak to the people that yeah, are there. Right. But, but I, 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 you know, as earlier I said that selling drugs, you know, you got this different kind of respect or what seems to be respect. And, and maybe that was, that should have been like, well, I guess it was a sign, but, but all of a sudden, that sort of a respect showed itself there. That was like, wait a second, like this is not good. No, yeah, not a good kind. This is not the good kind. Anyway, so uh, I'm looking at a mandatory minimum sentence of 30 years in prison. I lost my wife. I lost my kids, and, and my life, as far as I can tell, is is over. And I essentially need a miracle to turn this to turn this situation around. I'd always been clever. You know, when I was younger, you know, I didn't talk, talk, I didn't mention the first time I went to rehab when I was, I turned 19 in rehab the first time after the, after the big weed bust, the first one. And, um, you know, I I went to a 28 day program and and I learned about the 12 steps and I, I learned a lot about addiction, but I didn't really have a good, I didn't have a reason. For, for me, I didn't have a reason to get so maybe I didn't maybe the bottom wasn't deep enough at the time or or whatever it is that lots of people don't get sober after their first stint in rehab. Oh, yeah. I did a couple of stints outpatient as well uh, after that, but but here I am at a place of just really utter brokenness. I was not clever. This was clear. <laughs> I had made tons of, there was a time when I had a, a machine to count money, you know, that it, it, but none of that mattered at all. None of the, the faux love or faux respect or attention that I had gotten was all gone. And every time you get busted when you're a drug dealer, you know, you're, all that stuff goes away. Half the people turn against you. The other half are afraid you're a narc, you know, yeah. it's just, is it. It's a it's a it's a pretty dark and lonely time oh, yeah. when, when the truth when the light shines on you you feel like a cockroach in the, yeah <laughs> in the kitchen. But you were desperate now because you were looking at the thirty years. Yeah, yeah. You had a you know like the gift of desperation where maybe I need to do something. Yeah, here's a serious spot for me. The bigger issue was that I lost my kids. Right. Um, I didn't care about that. In fact, you know, I would have just I got friends in other places. You know, I could have gone away. And I, that was what I had. I had a couple of plans on the table. How am I going to? You know, you're, you're clever. How are you? You've gotten out of everything else up to this point. What yeah. What gonna, states don't uh, extradite? Yeah, what countries say, don't yeah, extradite? Right, yeah. Uh, and that was my problem: <clears throat> is that I've got these two kids that I love, and I feel like need me. God has given them to me, and they're my responsibility. It's like I told you when I looked into my son's eyes and my daughter Bobby. And uh, this is not something that I can walk away from. I can't save myself here. These two young children, one and three years old at this time, 
their mother was murdered. And, you know, if I'm going to run and leave the country, what do they have? Mm-hmm. They've lost their mother. I'm going to abandon them. That's just not even an option. Uh, and so I was kind of the three options that I was looking at was, you know, leave the country, kidnap my kids and leave the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never was into hurting people. I was probably going to have to hurt some people. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, I didn't feel right about that. But but I still had a plan. Right. <laughs> Leave the country by myself, which I couldn't do, and kill myself. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, these were the best solutions to the problem that I was in. Because as I look at the situation, you know, 30 years, what are these kids, are these kids going to want anything to do with me? In 30, are they going to visit me in prison? They're the only thing that really, for me, that was that was the anchor. Because I could have just dipped by myself, and that would have been the easiest solution at the time. And I believed that, you know, my mom is like, well, you just need to pray. And I'm like, pray? There's, like, judges involved. Like, I'm on the docket. Like, what yeah. do you mean? You can't, I can't pray myself out of this situation. <laughs> hey, that's not going to make go back in time and make this disappear. You know, so that was part of the struggle. Really interesting uh, what, what, how things turned. My dad had legitimately gotten addicted to Oxycontin. He had gotten in a car wreck and broke his neck. And he had had a broken neck in the past because of a work injury. So he devolved quickly when that happened. His addiction you know, came on strong because he had a history of addiction before then. But this was when Oxycontin was new. And it didn't take long before, you know, the doctors prescribed him and he thought it was BS. So he, you know, eats a couple of them <laughs> the first time. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, he's at dinner. He, the way he told me the story, you know, he's at dinner kind of nodding. And he kind of thought it was like Tylenol Plus. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> so it, you know, it just kicked in hard from there. He starts off with a... You know, you know how it is if you haven't used and you start off, you're going to be chasing that. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't long before his addiction led to refinancing the house, financing basically everything they own and spending up their retirement and putting the business and home in jeopardy. And so he goes to this place, and you know, from his addiction. He goes to this place called the Home of Grace, which is a faith-based treatment center in Van Cleve, Mississippi. And he had been there for several months. I think it's October when he gets out. And I am just ate up at this point. Uh, you know, I had to cut back selling drugs and doing drugs. I'm, I'm facing this mandatory minimum sentence of 30 years in prison. I'm trying to visit my kids on the weekend and trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And, you know, I'm seeing a psychiatrist and they're giving me antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication, ADD. So I'm taking pills to keep me from being depressed, pills to help me to sleep at night, pills to wake me up in the morning and pills to make me not so anxious that I can face the day. And and I'm obviously abusing every single one of those, (laughs) mixing them up and snorting them and and every, every wrong thing that you can do. And I remember this one particular day, I'm I'm coming back from visiting my kids in Jackson because I live in Slidell at the time with my parents. Um, 
parents of a 26 year old I was real with. Uh, and I had so much anxiety, and I know that essentially wanted or my time is limited. I just couldn't even go home. Like, you know, anxiety is irrational. This may have been rational on one level, but it was that irrational sense that I just couldn't even go home. I couldn't cope with pulling into my driveway. Yeah. And there is this very old 19th century, 18th century graveyard right around the kind of my parents live in this area, this kind of a little bit swampy and kind of old part of flat out. It's on the back side of a loop in the neighborhood. Anyway, so I go to this graveyard where I had been before. There's this cross with a little kneeling bench in front of it. It's really, really old and it just kind of had this setting and I just needed, I just went there because it's a place that I'd gone before. You know, and I text my mom, and I don't even remember what I said, but I was just like, I can't even come home. I'm, like, losing it. And her and my dad show up there. And he'd been gone for three months. You know, I hadn't seen him. And our relationship in the midst of all of that had been very bad. Um, you know, me and my stepdad, you know, uh, the common story, but he had been using, and then I was using. Everybody was using and everybody was dysfunctional. That's, mm-hmm. that's just the baseline in my life uh, for most of it. And so, you know, that relationship was very bad. Anyway, he and my mom walk up and he was just different. Like, I could see that he was different. He was, in my mind at the time, the sun shining on him just right, I don't know, but he was glowing and his feet didn't touch the ground. And he, hmm. He walks up and he embraced me and spoke wisdom to me and comfort to me, you know, and he had just gotten out of the home of grace. He had been there for the last three months and went through this faith-based program, uh, really intense discipleship. You know, there's generally a hundred men there who were broken and found bottom and are willing to make change mm-hmm. and uh, and they know they need it. And, yeah. Uh, so he, he came, you know, he was just different. And so you ended up going there. Yeah. So I, uh, it was about four months, three, three months later, maybe four months later, I decided to go there because I saw the greatness of the change that mm-hmm. occurred in him. So I go to the home of grace and, and, it, and it's just what I described. And I spend uh, three months there, all the while having court dates. And, right. You know, it was a real, just staying there was a real act of faith. Or anyone to stay in, you know, everybody who's yeah. been in rehab before is like, I got this after yeah. week one. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, you, you, you get sober and you feel strong and you're like, I'm ready. Well, for me, it was, I knew that I needed to, you know, get in, I got in that environment and, and People, there's these, this program is, it's faith oriented. So mm-hmm. there's all these godly men that are coming there and they're investing in you. You're going to uh, devotional meetings every morning, uh, every day of the week. You have uh, worship and then you have these classes, discipleship classes, where you're learning about, learning about yourself. You're learning life skills. You're learning the Bible. You're learning about faith. Uh, you're learning about spiritual warfare or, or battling against the demons that mm-hmm. are, that are 
real or imagined <laughs> that are uh, having victory over us. And so for me, that, that first battle of faith was I had to, nobody in Jackson knows that I had been arrested and I'm fighting for custody of my kids in court <laughs> and concurrently facing a mandatory minimum sentence of 30 years in prison. And so when I go into rehab, I have to come clean on all that. Some of it. <laughs> I didn't come clean all of it. But I came clean on that. I needed to go in a rehab and do something to better my life. And I'm having to explain this to a two and four year old. Right. Yeah. Or, or maybe three and five year old at the time. I had visited them faithfully every other weekend uh, throughout all of this. But during this three months, I was thinking, well, I'll, I'll be able to get a pass. No. <laughs> no pass. My, my counselor was like, you need to have the faith to believe that you can give this to God and that whatever happens, whatever changes need to happen in your life, we're going to bring, bring about what they need and what you need to be able to be there for them. And my, my thought frame is that I'm going to be in prison for 30 years and I may never get a chance to see them again to say anything before I go. You know, and that's the way... That's the voice that's, mm. that's, that's trying to lead me to, to make this choice. But So he put it in those terms. For me, I never thought about faith in that way, like right. trusting God with something that was important. I was like, that's radical. What are you, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, yeah. I need to take care of this. This is yeah. my thing. Anyway, uh, that's what I did. I I'd kind of made a commitment to to. to spend that time there to see what God had planned for me and see what God could do in my life during that time period and and trust uh, and put things in his hands because it had all been in my hands up until that point. Mm. And we, as you can see, the way the story has gone, uh, it, it wasn't the best hands for my life or anyone else's. The older I get, the more I realize how many other people's lives were affected by me and what I was doing. You know, I can remember as a young person being you know, I'm not hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. That's the anthem of every addict. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's my decision. It's me. Yeah. Anyway. So. So God set you on this path of restoration. Yeah. Going to, and, to rehab. I remember in one, in one of those classes, uh, this, this, this gentleman is, is teaching us. He talked about you know, repentance and, and committing your life to God and confession. And I just remember. You know, it's kind of like the, in, in the 12 steps where you list list all, all the things that you've done and you try to make amends for those. Well, here it's it's listing, listing those sins that I've committed and confessing to God kind of as the beginning of that process. And I remember really doing that, taking, taking that task on with sincerity and going down into the chapel by myself and how hard it was to, to verbalize or even consciously go through some certain sins. I had no doubt. I didn't doubt in any way that God was aware of everything that I had done. Right, yeah. But saying them out loud is different. Yeah. Or writing yeah, facing them, them Facing mm-hmm. them is a whole different thing. And uh, and my life changed in that place. It's, it's, I have no other way of describing it. And this is, this is the thing that, you know, to me it was radical, but I, I tell this all the time, and maybe it's, you know, 
vulgar or or base or what have you, but I remember coming to the realization with one of my buddies in there. I was like, I I can't have sex anymore with someone I'm not married to. Like it became a like a rational thing that if I'm you know trying to be faithful, this is not a willy nilly. Like I really have to follow Jesus. I now. have to. Yeah, like, I have I'm to. Have like to, I'm really going to do. This. I have to legitimately try to be obedient to God. And it was like something I was considering. Mm-hmm. Like this was a re- real consideration, which in the in my cult, like in my life oh, and world radical. and culture, that was the exact opposite of the motivation of every moment of my life up until that point. I mean, you could even say that's radical, even within the church, even now. Barely so, really? and it's not easy. No, right? You know, and so you know that. But that to me was a signal of a, of a, of a, of something having changed within me that, that that was even on the table oh yeah and um and everything began to change after after that you know there i believe that i made a real commitment to god i, re- I, I sincerely made a commitment but but a thing that was different for me now was that within that relationship with god the way the gospel was communicated to me then that you know, Jesus, being the Son of God, paid for the sins of the world, died uh, on the cross, was buried and resurrected, was more than just a story. Because along with that, he invited me to carry on that work. And that is where I found purpose. Hmm. Because I learned that of all those sinful things that I confessed to God, of all those things that I was ashamed of, he paid the price for those things and took that his shame that shame on himself, so that now this story can be something that can be can show his glory in the transformation that he's been able to bring out in my life, and to know that you know I'm not saying that there's people who haven't done things that were more shameful than what I did. But you got to work hard at it if you did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a smaller yeah. crowd. Yeah, there's of, always somebody. There's always yeah. somebody. Some are secret than others, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's always somebody. But you, you know, you you had to work at it for a long time to top some of the list of things that I've done. And so now that this, those shameful things are things that can be used for good now, because I can I can relate to certain people in ways that they can say, "Wow." You know, God can turn that around, and that that kind of thing can be forgiven. Some people just don't even understand grace or forgiveness on a level to even think that certain things can be forgiven uh, in the transformation. And I remember there, you know, this feeling 10 years younger, 15 years younger, and I was pretty young then. Um, but the burden of my life had, had become so heavy that it, it was overwhelming. But, but it wasn't over because from that point on, even though God had forgiven me, I had not been redeemed before the world. <laughs> I had done a lot of people wrong. I'm still facing 30 years in prison, mandatory minimum sentence, 30 years in prison, and you know, trying to get custody of my kids back. And I don't have any real work skills mm-hmm. besides brewing beer, which really wasn't a good option <laughs> for me. 
uh, or manufacturing drugs or selling drugs or growing wheat. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, these were not good options for me. Yeah. And I'm a felon, so it's a little bit hard to get right. a job anyway. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you, you, it's, it's kind of neat, the fences that you've built, in, yeah. the, the way you've narrowed down your own options in life. So, so here I am. You know, I, I, I come out of that, uh, that place, and, and, and I have to face the world. And, I'll, and I used to like to say that it took me five years to get back to zero. You know, I, I come out of there, and I've got, I've got to face this, this, this court. I've got to fight for custody of my kids. I've got to find a career. <clears throat> I've got court fines, lawyers' fees, you know, all this stuff that's going on for years. I'm paying paying deeply to get back to where a lot of people start from. My credit, obviously, is is in the gutter. You know, I'm way below zero. And to even, you know, once you get out of, of rehab, people who go to rehab know this, then the real battle begins and you get out and you're like, you know, your, your, your options are probably pretty limited at that time. There's no quick way to get, dig yourself out of the hole that you've been in. And that's really when it takes hope. Mm. You know, you got to hope that there's a way out of this because addicts, we have this tendency towards black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking where it's like, you know, I'm either all in or I'm all out, but if I can't get in, then I might as well, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> Might as well, you know, do the backstroke in this pile of drugs over here. But yeah. what's the difference? Right. I'll, these people will never accept me, or you know, this I'll never make it. I'll never be able to get out of debt. I'll never, you know, I'm paying probation fees, court fines, drug tests, you know, supervision fees. I owe the lawyers money. Uh, all my creditors want money. It's like, how do you get out of that hole? Mm-hmm. It's it's. It's dark and it, yeah. and it seems insurmountable and without without hope and light. Well, what, so, how long have you been sober now? Two thousand and five. Two thousand five. So, fifteen years. May. I think it was. I want to say May eighth. It was. It was Easter Sunday when I got out of the home grace. Well, so that's when I got out. So a little bit longer than that because I went in in, in January. I did bring some drugs with me in there. So. Well, we had to give about two and a half, three weeks in before yeah, right. <laughs> before God spoke to me, and I flushed those down the toilet. Uh, but you know that's not an unheard of story either. Yeah. No. <laughs> so over your fifteen years of being sober, how have you stayed sober? That, that's where that purpose and that hope comes comes into play. You know, when I when I came out of the home of grace, we had gotten so many people investing in this, and so much discipleship and training and, and Bible study and stuff that I, so, so the first place that I knew to try to go to was to get engaged in the church. And I got, I was involved in this little church and I was there every time the doors were open and I started to uh, get, not just, I wasn't going there as a consumer. I was all in, you know, one of the first ministries that I got to get involved in was at a juvenile uh, detention center in Florida parish where we would, there was a small group of us that would go in there and, and just try to encourage these young men who were in prison and, and offer them hope and, and share the gospel with them. And I remember the first time I went in there, uh, I was with this really older guy. He was from the country, and, you know, like he was just so dry, and, and he was doing his best. But I just remember, like, I didn't have anything prepared. I'd never been before. I didn't know what I was doing. 
but I had this hope that was inside of mm-hmm. me and I'd been through this transformation and I knew that my life was different and you know maybe it's six months clean at this time but but really you know I I, I opened up and just shared my story mm-hmm. the same as what I said before about how God could take all the shameful things that I've done and use them to good. I began to use that story for good to offer these young men a, a, an opportunity to, to, to hear a story of hope and to know that there's another path. And, and so the, your and primary God in that. And, uh, and, and that really just, it fed me in a way mm-hmm. that I, I had never, uh, never been fed before, but it began to be this purpose Purpose and accountability were kind of two areas. Like, I couldn't fulfill the purpose that I believe that God had planned for me. It was a you know, part of the gospel that I've received. Is that God has a plan, not just for people, but for me. Mm-hmm. And that even through the midst of everything that I went through, He was always uh, had a plan for me. And for me to, to now begin to serve in that plan, you know, there was a part of me that knew that I needed to. Uh, it, it, it became a motivator and an accountability, and it and it, and allowed me to be plugged into an environment. I put myself into environments and social groups that had accountability included within it, and baked into it, yeah. baked into it, and and along with that, there was a a, a realization that I, I didn't begin to see this until I began to look from from down the road much further. But a lot of the time, and and many of the other times that I tried to get sober. I took something out of my life, leaving it empty. Right, you didn't replace it. I, I you know, you, 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 if your whole world is drugs, drug addicts, drug dealers, you know, alcohol, whatever it is, all your friends are at a bar. Every birthday party, you go to a kid's birthday party, and everybody's drinking. Like, mm-hmm. if your whole world is that, you can't just have an empty life after that that's not going to work it's right. not realistic and yeah. even if it did would that even be worth living yeah. <laughs> yeah you know if you if you just you know have to exile yourself to an island somewhere and so in part i can recognize that that purpose helped to drive me to be a part of ministry a part of giving back a part of having something to offer the world for once and an accountability within that is that I didn't want to disqualify myself from that. I didn't want to uh, be in a position where, you know, I, the satisfaction that I got from that first time and every other consecutive time of being able to share, because I shared my story with that group of young men and two people made commitments based on, I didn't even know what I was doing. Yeah, I just told a story and just I was inspired and excited and I felt alive. Yeah, like I felt like I had something valuable to say to these young men, and I hoped that I could do something so that they wouldn't go through what I went through. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's kind of sad and it's and it's kind of ironic. Like your story and my story is so much alike, but I have another good friend. Whose story is almost identical to oh, really? losing his wife and kids, yeah. and you know he's not in the same place where we are, but he's not in the same place where he was. Where he was yeah. And I was able to walk with him through that and and help him to you know to develop in, in faith to some extent and 
to be able to cope with that world in, in a completely different way. But we're not alone. There's so many other people who, you know, who, who've been through something very much like oh, what yeah. ours is, which is a tragic. It's tragic. Oh, yeah. And then, and to hope that you can reach someone's life, and you know, I take I take a lot more responsibility for what happened than I did then, even though I, f- I felt guilt from what happened then. I recognize that that if I were living <laughs> like I should have been living, the the circumstances that came to be you know, wouldn't have come to be. I don't blame myself for that. I don't feel right. feel guilt or anything for that. But but recognizing that can help to motivate me as I as I try to be you know be able to provide something mm-hmm. different for other people. I don't want them to have an outcome, anything at all. Right. <laughs> Even in the ballpark of yeah. the destruction, it, it is an utter miracle. The stories that I could tell about how I'm not in prison. And about how I got full custody of my children, and about where I mean, I haven't even told you really. Yeah, I, mean, I, I can't yeah. tell that whole story, but yeah. I will say that now where I am is that you know it's more than fifteen years later, or fifteen years later. Uh, you know, I own my own house. I've got great credit. I'm not in debt. You're not uh, driving a beater. I'm not on probation yeah. or parole. <laughs> Uh, I, I have graduated from college, and I have two master's degrees, and I'm on the last leg of getting a PhD. I'm an, uh, I'm, I'm an adjunct professor at the seminary, and I've worked either as a, as a staff role or a volunteer role at churches consistently from the time I got of got out of the home of grace. You know, I got custody of my kids back. I've remarried. You know, they're grown. My world is 180 degrees different than anything I had ever imagined that it might possibly be able to be. And I never would have gotten to zero without hope and light and purpose. You know, the hill to climb up to not just not being in debt, not being on probation and poor parole, not having to answer to someone, um, you know, being able to have any social value as a contribution to society and life were just leagues away from what really should have been attainable for someone who had lived the life that I had lived. I don't deserve to be where I am. And I don't know how, I, I, I couldn't have done it under my own strength. Yeah. It was beyond me. Yeah, God was doing for you, what you're going to do for yourself. I just, I just always did as much as I could. Yeah. And willing. Yeah. Willing to take one step at a time. And didn't quit. Yeah. I quit drugs. Yeah. <laughs> and that was well, hard to do. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that was a major thing for me that was very important is I didn't quit the home of grace. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the first things I'd never quit. Yeah. You know, I didn't quit high school, but I kind of did. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I finished it, like I said, for those reasons. But I wouldn't have finished college if, if I had quit the Home of Grace. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, I, there was a, a lesson that I learned about faithfulness and commitment and seeing something through. Even though, like, you know, when you graduated from the Home of Grace, you'd get this chain with this little brass uh, dog tag on it with mm-hmm. your date and stuff. We called it bling. Bling. You huh? know, uh, you you know that was kind of a thing. But that's not going to keep you sober. You know, graduating wouldn't keep you sober. I knew that. 
Right. But that commitment and seeing it through showed you, you know, showed me that I could do it and it gave me a reward and a sense of sense that I could complete something and it gave me confidence to to stick with things. Because if you're going to get sober, you got to learn to stick with some things. Oh, yeah, definitely. And you got to learn to commit to some things that are sometimes very dry and, and not, mm-hmm. you know, not all that fun. Maybe right. they are, or maybe they're, especially if you're doing it right, yeah. you're going to get the reward at an AA meeting or NA meeting of sharing something or, or sponsoring someone or being able to exercise purpose in the sense that yeah. what you've been through can help your brother. Mm-hmm. Well, I know when I first met you, you had a lot of things that I wanted and I looked up to and I respected, um, you know, and that was over around five, six years ago or whatever. And uh, just even seeing you grow from then to now has been amazing. And I know I've grown a lot <laughs> since we first met. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing to hear your story of recovery because, like, even though we kind of have two separate recovery paths i do 12 steps and you know your your kind of program of recovery is more just all in with the church there's all this there's similar things that we do you know we we do a lot of the same types of things service to others helping others having a purpose um you know the ability the accountability those are all foundational things that anybody who's in recovery who's trying and growing and working a, a decent recovery program they're going to be doing these these same things and um you know i appreciate that whenever i see a, somebody who's working a different you know recovery path and that i was on because there's always something i can learn from it you know i don't think there's anybody has recovery you know the recovery market cornered on any one particular <laughs> type of way because it takes all takes all different types and uh because there's all different types of people in recovery. And if people's lives are being changed and, and, and they're able to escape from from addiction, you know, you, you need a lot of tools. And one of the great things about AA and NA is it's, it's available. Mm-hmm. You know, like the path that I, I was delivered through is not an – it's probably not as accessible Um you know, because it, it, I went to a very particular place, and there's not a lot of. I mean, there are some, but every even every faith-based program is different. It's all different, and yeah. and where I was in my life, and usually, you know, early on when I was immature, I was like, faith-based is the only way. It's the only way, yeah. And you you know, even through our relationship, I grew a lot beyond that because I've worked with a lot of people yeah. who struggle with addiction, and I've seen addiction work in a lot of people's lives. And right. my dad always went, you know, even though he went to the Home of Grace. He went to you know twelve step programs mm-hmm. and 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 was was involved in AA and yeah. NA in a big way and celebrate recovery uh, too as well and there's a lot of these good very good programs and really foundationally they all started out in faith <laughs> they all did yeah they all <laughs> yeah, you're, stem you're from basically the same place I believe it's seven steps require interaction yeah. with a higher power right and uh, and. You know, it's a, it's a, it's, there's a discipleship model, an accountability model, and purpose, like you said. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're we're on the same world. But you know, I I certainly have learned that I I am not all knowing enough to say this is the only way you're right. going to do it. Yeah, because there's things that early on that programs that I know that people are in that I wouldn't have agreed with. Right. But uh, I've seen that the only way some people are able to make it. Yeah. 
is down some of those paths. Yeah. And, and so uh, even different drugs have different That's different different effects mm-hmm. and different uh, damages that they do to our body and, yep. and, and spirit and soul yep. that, uh, you know, you, the, the, the path to getting right can be, it can be a different one. Well, dude, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. We could, me and you, that is one thing that we could do is pretty much talk forever. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we could be like four hours from now still going. Yeah. And so I, I really appreciate you coming and telling us your story. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to do it. You know, if you ever want to follow up, we can talk about the how I got my kids back. Yeah, that's, man. Yeah. That's a whole unit in itself. <laughs> or the reason why I'm not in prison. Yeah, that's another. That's that's another. That's another good story as yeah. well. I tried to. I tried to cut a lot of stuff out. You know, but it's I know tough. Was, I know that was a long-winded one. No, no. But good. I've told it in longer, and I've told it told in shorter, shorter ones. Yeah. But but I, but I felt like I needed to to hit a couple of those. Oh points. yeah, definitely. Well, all right, everybody. Thank you for another show. Listening to another show of Soberholic Podcast. You can email us at Soberholic podcast at gmail.com and you can uh, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, like us, share us. Thank you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Soberholic with Roger and Jason. If you like the show and want to know more, check out soberholicpodcast.com. Please remember to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next week, Soberholics. Soberholics.